Right, open your Bibles to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. The title for this evening is Get the Big Picture. And as a Christian, if, you know, even, you know, write these titles over the chapters in your Bible because it can help you, you know, when you're looking for a topic or looking for a place to read that you can look at the titles and go, okay, this is, this is where I need to read. But get the big picture is something that you should keep in your mind all the time so that every day, you know, whatever you're going through, you might go through, you can tell yourself, there's a bigger picture than what I'm seeing right now. There's more to what I'm dealing with right now. And God is behind the scenes painting this picture. We can only see a part of it. But when he's done, we'll see the whole picture, the bigger picture. Ruth and Esther should be an encouragement to us to be faithful in our service to God. And we are living, as we well know, in a time when it's easy to compromise and even to quit walking with God, to throw in the towel. But these two women heroes of the faith show us what it is to be committed to the Lord and the will of God, no matter what the circumstances are. And the prayer is that the book of Esther will help all of us in our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth and Esther are the only women in the Old Testament who have entire books devoted to them. The book of Ruth tells us the story of a Gentile who married a Jew and became an ancestress to the Messiah, Jesus. The book of Esther introduces us to a Jewish woman who married a Gentile and was used by God to save the the Jewish nation from annihilation so that the Messiah could be born. The story of Ruth starts with with a famine and it ends with the birth of a baby. While the story of Esther starts with a feast and it ends with the death of over 75,000 people. God is mentioned 25 times in the book of Ruth, but he's not mentioned one single time in the whole book of Esther. And yet in both books, the will of God is fulfilled and the providential hand of God is clearly seen. In spite of their different backgrounds and experiences, both Ruth and Esther were committed to do the will of God. Ruth's reply to Naomi in Ruth 1, 16-16 is one of the greatest confessions of faith found in Scripture. When Ruth replied to Naomi, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And Esther's reply to Mordecai in chapter 416 reveals a woman willing to lay down her life to save her people. She said, it says, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Ruth and Esther both call for Christians today to be committed to Jesus Christ and to do his will at any cost. It has been said of faith, it is not believing in spite of evidence, 
but obeying in spite of consequences. Ruth and Esther point the way to that kind of a dynamic and powerful and exciting faith, and we would be smart to follow their example. In 1860, the American essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote in his book titled The Conduct of Life, he said, the efforts which we make to escape from our destiny only serve to lead us into it. And that's just as true today as it was when that book was published. And because God gave us freedom of choice, we can either choose to ignore his will or we can argue with it, we can disobey it, we can even fight against it. But in the end, the Lord is going to win. You can't go against God and expect to come out winning. Because Psalm 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and he does according to his will, uh, his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the land. Daniel 4, 35. I'm sorry, uh, the first part, the counsel of the Lord stands forever is Psalm 33, 11, and he does according to his will uh, the army of heaven and the heavens of the earth. That's Daniel 4, 35. Job asked in Job 9.4, Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? Who has, ha- who has hardened themselves against God and come out on top? Job knew the answer. And so do we. Nobody. If we obey God's will, everything in life holds together. But if we disobey it, everything starts to fall apart. Nowhere in the Bible... Is this truth better shown to us than in the experiences of Elimelech and his wife Naomi in the book of Ruth? In chapter 1, we see mistakes that we have to avoid as we deal with the problems and the trials of life. In the book of Esther, it starts with Queen Vashti refusing to obey her husband, King Ahasuerus. And as a result, she was soon banished and the search was on for a new queen. The king sent out an order to gather all the beautiful women in the empire. And bring them into his royal harem. Esther, her name meaning star, a young Jewish woman, was one of those chosen to be in his to be in his royal harem. And King Ahasuerus was so pleased with her that he made her his queen. In the meantime, Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, became a government official. And during his time in office, he stopped an an assassination plot. But the ambitious, self-serving Haman was appointed second in command in the empire. And when Mordecai refused to bow down in reverence to him, Haman, man, he got so angry. He was furious. And he decided decided he was going to destroy Mordecai and all the Jews along with him. But to do this, Haman had to deceive the king. And he persuaded the king to put out an order condemning the Jews to death. Mordecai told Queen Esther about this order, and she decided to risk her life to save her people. And so Esther asked King Ahasuerus and Haman to be her guest at a banquet. And during the feast, the king asked Esther what, what what she really wanted. And he promised to give her anything that she wanted. Esther simply invited both men to another banquet the next day. And that night, the king couldn't sleep. So he, so he goes flipping through some old records in the royal archives. 
And he finds this, this, this article. He, he, he reads about an assassination plot that Mordecai had thwarted. And he was surprised to find out that Mordecai was never rewarded for what he did. So the king asked Haman, hey, what do you think should be done to properly thank a hero like Mordecai? Well, he, and, but he didn't say Mordecai. What do you think he should, that, that we should do to properly thank a hero? Haman thought that the king, oh, he has to be talking about me. And so Haman describes an extravagant reward. And the king said, okay, we'll do that. But Haman was shocked and totally humiliated when he found out it was all for Mordecai. He was the person, Mordecai was the person to be honored. And during that second banquet, the king asked Esther again what she wanted. And she had said that somebody had plotted to destroy her and her people. And she said, Haman was the one. And immediately the king sentenced Haman to die on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. When it was all over, Mordecai was appointed to Haman's position and the Jews were guaranteed protection all over the land. And then to celebrate this historic occasion, the Feast of Purim was established and that feast is still celebrated today in Israel. And because of Queen Esther's courageous act, a whole nation was saved. Seeing her God-given opportunity, she took it. And her life made a difference. And you know what? Ours can and it should. Because we are Christians, our life should make a difference in this world. So as we read about Esther, watch for God in your life. Maybe he's prepared you to do something, to act in such a time as this. In the book of Esther, we find God's power and is present at work through the lives of several people to carry out his will. And these people, I'm going to give you the names of the main characters in the story. King Ahasuerus, Queen Vashti, Haman, a wicked officer, Mordecai, a godly Jew, and Esther, a woman of beauty, both inside and out. And as I said earlier, it's interesting that the name of God is never mentioned one time in the book of Esther nor is there any hint of it in the New Testament. But in no other part of the Bible is God's providential hand or his care of his people more obvious. So let's begin now with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. And it says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. So at the time that this story begins, King Ahasuerus, his name is actually Artaxerxes, was only in the third year of his 21-year reign uh, from 486 to 465 B.C. He was a very powerful king. And from Shushan, or Susa, his capital, he ruled the vast Persian empire from India to Ethiopia. Now, like I said, Ahasuerus is not the king's name. It's a title. And Ahasuerus means high father or venerable king. Like the word Caesar. It's just a title, and it doesn't identify the man. It's not his name. There wasn't a more powerful man on all the earth at that time than the Persian king Ahasuerus. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being uh, before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180, 180 days in all. Now, it was, it was a common thing for kings to throw one of these you know, over-the-top parties. The Assyrian king Ashurnasirpal once claimed that he entertained nearly 70,000 people for a 10-day extravaganza. Persian banquets were known to entertain up to 15,000 guests. Now, the guests here in Esther include the upper class of Media and Persia, the upper class who were the ranking officials in, in the administration, the military brass, and maybe the local governors. Can you imagine? This was a 180-day party. Thousands of people, millions of dollars for six months. Every kind of display of pomp and splendor showed the majesty and the glory of King Ahasuerus. Parades showed off everything from the slaves that the king had made of conquered peoples to the riches that he had gathered. But the real purpose of this this whole gathering was to plan the battle strategy for invading Greece and to show all of these important guests that he had enough wealth to carry out the war. War wasn't just a matter of surviving. It was also a way of getting more wealth, more land, and more power. And this little get-together had all the makings of a pagan celebration. Loud music, wild dancing, eating, drinking, and drunkenness. And from start to finish, the majesty and the glory of the king were extravagantly displayed. Verse 5. And when these days were completed, so when this party was over, the king made a feast, another one, lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So right after this six-month party was over, he throws another party for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the palace of Shushan. Now, this one only lasted for seven days, and it was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. Verse 5 is speaking about another banquet, again, one for the citadel staff. And the citadel was a residence for only the king's household and administration. But the people listed, he said, notice, from the greatest to the least, this suggests that the lower ranking officials who served in the citadel were also included here. Verse 6 and 7. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. It was really important that King Ahasuerus impresses his peers and his military leaders with all of his wealth and power. When they saw the marble pillars and the beautiful drapes hung from the silver rings and the gold and the silver couches on these beautiful marble mosaic pavements and the golden tables, what else could they do but submit to the king when they saw his wealth and his power? It's like a person, you know, trying to sell you a product. 
You know, they want to wine you and dine you. They want to take you out to a nice restaurant and they want to break down your resistance. Ahasuerus here, being a proud man himself, he knew how to influence even the pride, the prideful ones. He knew how to touch the pride in others. The beauty and the glory of this setting, again, it must have blown the people's minds. Verse 8. In accordance with the law, the drinking, notice, was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers, officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. By the order of the king, there were no limits placed on the drinking. The king had instructed all of his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. Basically, it was an open bar, all you could drink. Come on, boys, drink up. His guests could drink as much or as little as they wanted. This was an incredible display, again, of his majesty, his power, and his riches. And I'm sure this probably helped to get the support he needed when they got a little tipsy and they began to feel good. It was the mother of all parties. It was a party that the people would never forget. But something important was missing. The queen. Look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So while the men were partying it up, Vashti was having her own party for the women. The men brought their wives, but you see, they didn't attend the same banquet in that day. Because the custom of that day was the men and women did not attend the same parties. It would break the social custom. The women were in separate rooms. The banquet for the men was serious business, and apparently they didn't mix pleasure with business. The king was trying to sell a war, so Vashti was entertaining the women at another banquet. And then something happened. One of those unexpected but critical moments that changes everything. It dampens the party spirit. Look at verses 10 and 11. On the seventh day, the last day of this party, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. No doubt. All this partying had turned into a drunken feast, a celebration here. And no doubt the king and his buddies are plastered. And now the king wants to show off his wife. He wants to show off another one of his prized possessions. He wants to show how beautiful his wife, uh, Queen Vashti, is. So what does he do? He orders his staff to bring her to the banquet hall. He says, make sure she's wearing her royal crown. Verses 12 through 15. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Mersina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? 
So she was summoned by the king's staff to come into where they were partying because he wants to show her off to his friends. She's not in the mood. She does not want to be a one woman in a one woman beauty pageant. She refused to obey the order to appear. Her beauty was her own and her husband's. She didn't want to be put on display in front of a bunch of drunks as though they could just lust after her. And because of the stand that she took, she was harshly dealt with. And she was even disgraced. But remember now, as I said from the beginning, beginning, while all of this is going on, God is doing a work behind the scenes. And his providential hand is controlling everything that's going on. It might look like it's just nothing more than a drunken party that's gotten out of control. But God is in full control. He knows exactly what's going on. He always does. Queen Vashti deserves a lot of credit and recognition for what she did here. She took a stand against the most powerful king in the land at that time. And there's a, there's a lesson here for husbands to learn. Submission doesn't mean that a wife becomes a sexual slave to the carnal and evil desires of her husband. It was never God's design or intent for a wife to submit to her husband's evil desires, ungodly desires. The king's evil was asking his wife to parade herself in front of a bunch of drunken men who would have nothing but lust on their minds. You see, he wasn't asking her to do something godly. He wasn't asking for a godly submission. It was a carnal submission. Marriage, not even marriage, gives a husband the right or the freedom to satisfy his wicked fantasies by using his wife as a sexual object. And it's shocking what men will, will demand of their wives to do and then use the Bible to support their wicked desire. And over the years of marriage counseling, I've heard it. He says, well, I'm supposed to submit to him in everything. Yeah, put everything godly at the end of the verse. Everything godly. And if you're a godly husband, you're not going to demand anything that's ungodly. So again, uh, also, the Bible says, husband, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And Jesus Christ would do nothing ungodly or what would be uh, ruin the dignity of his bride, the church. So as husbands, we need to be careful what we ask of the woman that God has given us. And be sure that it doesn't insult her dignity as a person or is against her will. Just to fulfill your will for your carnal satisfaction. It's pretty clear that Ahasuerus didn't have any boundaries. Because he got furious when she said no to him. And most likely he wasn't used to that. He wasn't used to anybody saying no to him, and especially his wife, because of the days that they lived. The situation was probably made worse by his drunkenness. And the seven princes in verse 14 were his close advisors. And notice what he does. He asks them, hey, what what should I do now? The king was probably in shock. Imagine having to get up and say, hey, guys, uh, I'm really sorry, but, you know, the the program for the evening has changed. (laughs) Our main attraction can't make it. The queen won't be joining us tonight. Can you imagine the the gossip and the whispering that began all through the banquet? 
You know, they probably were saying, hey, what kind of a king is he that he can't even command the queen? Verses 16 through 18. So again, he's asked his staff, he's asked his seven princes here, his leaders. He says, what should I do? And here's the answer from Mimican in verse 16 through 18. And Mimican answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she didn't come. This very day, the, no, um, this, this very day, uh, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say, to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. So this is quite a reaction by, by Memucan. And maybe he's afraid his wife will hear about what the queen Vashi did and all the other husbands and they'll have a fight on their hands when they get home. You know, maybe they were having trouble at home. And, and, and maybe he could use what happened here you know, maybe uh, uh, King Ahasuerus could use what happened here to lay down the law to his wife about how she needs to submit using the king's new order. It's pretty clear that all the men in the room were afraid that if nothing was done, all the women, all their wives might do what the queen did. And before this day was finished, they were afraid that maybe all of their wives, would, would, you know, all the king's peers, all the wives of the king's peers throughout Persia and Media are going to hear what Queen Vashti did and then he says here that there would be no end to their contempt and their anger. And so, uh, again, he's, you know, he's, he's saying, hey, guys, what, what, what should we do? If we don't do anything, we're going to lose control of our wives. And they're going to start treating, uh, they're going to start treating their husbands the same way. Listen to Memekan's suggestion now in verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti, notice, shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Again, he says, King, this is what we suggest you do. You write this addendum to the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it can never be changed. If you, if, if you didn't know the story here, you might say, well, you know, what does all of this have to do with anything? You know, how, how does Esther fit into all of this? Because so far, all we've read about is, is maybe the, the world's longest party and what happened at that party. But again, you always have to remember that no matter what's going on and no matter how much it doesn't make sense, there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture. This is all about the providential hand of God moving and carrying out his purpose. Look at Memucan's final suggestion. He says, give her royal position to another who is better than she. Keep in mind now. What's Esther got to do with all of this? She has no idea what's going on at this moment. She has no idea how it's going to change her life drastically. Just like Job. When God and Satan were having their discussion in heaven involving Job, he had no idea. He didn't know a thing about what was going on in heaven. He didn't know that, that his life 
was going to be changed drastically and that he was going to enter into the battle of his life. Esther's future here is being written and laid out for her and she has no idea what's going to take place. She may have had her own plans for her life, all planned out. And yet God has a different plan for her. And she's in for a huge surprise. You see, this is the amazing thing about the sovereignty of God. He's always working behind the scenes. He's moving things. He's pushing things. He's rearranging things. He's designing things. He's changing hearts and minds until everything is in place and ready for his perfect plan to begin and to be carried out. That's what's happening here in this first chapter. And that's what we're going to see all through the book of Esther. Again, don't think that God doesn't know what's going on here. Or that he's not in control of, what's, of this situation and the meetings and the events here and the affairs of all kinds. No matter what evil laws are being passed or what evil men are in control of, uh, 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 are in control, God is always at work. But you see, he does things so differently than we would do. And because he does, we jump to the wrong conclusions and then we react without thinking or we panic and we're afraid to do anything. As we continue reading, keep in mind, again, God's plan behind Memekin's idea. Look at verses 20 through 22 now. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memekin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his people. So the order goes out. And it says that in the kingdom, a wife is to honor her husband and he was to rule. Now, it's become law and it cannot be changed. It not even adjusted the smallest little bit. But as husbands, understand, you don't get submission by ordering it. Always remember that no matter what's going on, even in the midst of all that's going on, in the king's banquet hall, God's heart is still with the people. These Jews who are carried away from Jerusalem and living in exile in Persia, God still has a heart for them. But in order to keep his promise of preserving his people, who the Messiah is going to come, the line of the the Jews who he's going to come from, he has to keep them from becoming extinct. And the way he does it is right here in front of us in the events that are shaping up to make it all happen. Now, because Queen Vashti has been booted out of, the, uh, out of his life and booted out of the palace, there's an opening for a new queen. And guess what? God already has somebody handpicked for the job. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. You see, God can change hearts and he can accomplish and will accomplish his purposes. In Solomon's day, kings had total authority and they were often considered to be like gods. And this proverb, uh, Proverbs 21.1, shows that God and not earthly rulers has the ultimate authority over world events. And think about what's going on today, this moment. 
Even though people may not have realized that the earth's most powerful kings have always been under God's control. Listen to Isaiah 10, 5 through 8. What sorrow awaits Assyria? God says, the rod of my anger. I use it as a club to express my anger. I am sending Assyria against a godless nation, against a people with whom I am angry. Assyria will plunder them, trampling them like dirt beneath its feet. But the king of Assyria will not understand, notice, that he is my tool. His mind does not work that way. His plan is simply to destroy, to cut down nation after nation. He will say, each of my princes will soon be a king. God uses things, events, to carry out his will. King Artaxerxes, the most powerful king in the world, was nothing more than just a little stream that he was going to turn here and there in God's hands. God was moving his heart wherever and whenever he wanted. God was in no hurry. It's all going to come to pass in God's time. And I think the natural feeling is for us to think that if, if God is really involved, you know, why doesn't he do things faster? Why doesn't he put a stop to things? Why does he let it drag on? God's doing something. You know what? God's going to break hearts. He's going to bend people's minds. He's going to do whatever it takes. And God, and, and, you know, God's not in a hurry. God, as I said before, God doesn't wear a watch, and I doubt we're going to see any clocks in heaven. Compared to the way man does things, God's plans are well thought out, and as we all know, they're annoyingly slow to us. But he is sure. This is the big picture that we need to get into our, our heads. If we're going to be anxious for nothing, God has a bigger picture than I can see. God is at work. If God is able to move the hearts of kings like little streams of water wherever he wants, then he's able to rearrange and redirect lives that we think are unreachable and who do their own thing and who are too far gone to turn back. The king here is a good example. At the beginning, he seems to be so powerful and so important, so impressive. And then he winds up drunk. And his whole world is threatened by his wife's defiance. And now he seems to be running around without a clue as to what to do. Trying to figure it all out. How do I, how do I stay in charge? What should I do? In closing, again, there's a beautiful message here for anyone who's ever experienced brokenness. For anyone who's ever been crushed by life. For anyone who's ever felt that his past or her past is so messed up, so messy, so broken that there's no way in the world that God can make any reason and many out of it. We're going to learn some great unforgettable lessons in Esther and from Esther. Here was a little girl who must have cried her heart out at the death of her parents, which we'll see happening later on. Sad and alone. And yet, years later, she would become the key to the very survival of her people, the Jews. You see, God and only God can do things like this. And you know what? He still does things like this every single day. Working silently and invisibly behind the scenes of history. Psalm 147 verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. 
And he can do that and will do that if you will give him all of the pieces. The king didn't replace Vashti right away. Instead, he took off to invade Greece like he was wanting to do and planning to do, where he was humiliatingly defeated. And when he gets back home, he tries to find comfort in satisfying his carnal appetite by searching for a queen, a new queen, that would fill, and then filling his harem with future prospects. The women in his empire were not only to be obedient to the men, but they were also to just be there for their pleasure, to give them pleasure. The more you know about Ahasuerus and his philosophy of life, the more you dislike him. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Vashti. But here's the thing, no matter what happened to her, everything was now set for the two main people to come into the picture. Haman, the man who hated the Jews, and Esther, the woman who would deliver her people. Father, we thank you again so much for, God, the, the message here, God, the picture that we have here, Lord. And God, help us to always remember the bigger picture, God. May those words ring out through our minds every day. In every situation that we encounter or are involved in, God, there is a bigger picture. You are weaving a tapestry, and, and we can't see the whole thing, Lord. All we can see is the beginning. And when you first start a, a tapestry or a painting, the first few brush strokes, we can't make, what, make out what it is. We can't tell what it's going to be, but God already knows what it's going to be. And we have to trust that it's going to be beautiful. And it's going to be a work of his wisdom and grace and mercy. And God may be doing something in your life right now, and you don't know that it's God. There's something going on, and, 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 but you can't see the whole picture. God might be using that for, for his purposes, for your life. He may be using it to bring you to him. That you might become his child. So never write God off. Never accuse him of not being loving or caring or kind just because you can't figure out what he's doing. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And you're, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, first of all, he, he made sure that you were here tonight, that you could hear his word, and that he has a plan for your life. And as we worship, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles to the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, Lord. Yeah.